Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeeHouse.com. The show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Hey, France Dance. I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode. If you have any other topic suggestions, make sure to reach out, make sure to follow me on Instagram or on Facebook, and make sure to reach out to me if you are looking to monetize your podcast, launch your podcast, or figure out how to optimize your workflow. I'm so excited about some of the new offers that I put out, and I want to thank you in advance for sending me referrals or reaching out to me about getting my support. This podcast is absolutely free, and by sending me business is how you show support for this podcast, for bringing these important issues to the public. And here is a shout out to a fan quote. This recent podcast has been so insightful and motivational, hearing so many interesting people's stories and hearing about the struggles that everyone goes through pushes me to try to have a positive attitude. I really appreciate the work that goes into making them happen. They are so amazing. And quote, thank you for these messages and keep them coming. You know how to find me. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisca Show, everyone. Today, we are doing an episode. This was a request from our audience members. So thank you again so much for participating and being active. And today, we will be talking with a single mother by choice. So without any further ado, welcome to the show, Ellie Levy. Thank you for coming onto the show today. Thank you for having me, Francisca. And we go back as well. You have been in Moscow several times, and I don't know if you remember me as a child. Tell us a little bit about that. I used to go to Russia fairly frequently, eight times over the period of about six or seven years. And most of the trips I took, I went with an organization called YUSSR. I did go to Moscow, but both times I went to Moscow, I actually... I didn't go with YOSSR. Once I went with a different organization, and once I came alone with another friend, and we stayed in your parents' home in Moscow. And you must have been a very little girl. I remember there was a very cute little girl that was uh, <laughs> telling everybody. Well, there were three of us. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there was one little kid in particular, maybe it was you, <laughs> who was very precocious and very outgoing and really got all the girls into it, full of ruach. So good for you, Kalha Kavod, for all the chassad that you lived. I just, I just went a bunch of times, but you lived it. Thanks for sharing that. That's really meaningful for me. So let's dive in. I'd love to hear about your story. And I would like to start with your dating journey. You know, what was that like? How did that affect you? And how did that lead to the decisions later on in your life? So it's interesting. I I don't know that my story to become a mom started with dating. I mean, I guess, yeah, it does. Or I should say I did not succeed in getting married yet. I do want to still get married. And as dating, I guess, became more frustrating and frankly, more infrequent. I was more of a selective dater, not a not a mad dater. I wanted to go out with someone that could be a real candidate. And as the dating, I guess, became more frustrating, less productive, less frequent. And frankly, as I became older, I just realized that I'm running out of time. And frankly, you can become a mom with a smaller window, but you can become a wife anytime in your life. You can get married at any time, but if you want to have a child and become a mother and have the strength to raise that child, you you do have a bit of a time clock. So the fact of the matter is that the journey to become a mom really started, I would say, nine years ago when I decided to freeze my eggs. All of my friends at the time were freezing their eggs. It was a big rage. And interestingly, I heard about the egg freeze first from 
more what we would call Haredi girls in Brooklyn, because sadly, a single woman in their crowd was diagnosed with breast cancer and was counseled by the medical establishment that she should freeze her eggs. And she learned about the science and she turned around and told all of her single friends, hey, you should do this for sure also. So I really heard about egg freeze through the Haredi Brooklyn Borough Park. I lived in Flatbush at the time, but I heard about it from those girls first. And then it started to spread like wildfire. And all of my Upper West Side friends and more modern Orthodox friends started to do it as well. And at the time, when I went through it, I said to myself, the goal the whole goal was to become a mother. And of course, it was a risk. And we all knew that A, the egg freeze might not work. B, we might not get good quality eggs. We might not get a large quantity of eggs. And even if we got a lot of eggs, and even if we got a lot of good quality eggs, what they rate as good quality, they may not work. They they might not work. So it was a chance. But I told myself, this is the beginning of my journey toward motherhood, no matter the results, no matter what happens with these eggs. And then I sort of sat on that very important bank account for many years, for about eight years until I decided to launch, or I should say I, I sat on it for about six years um, which frankly comes with a cost. You do have to pay a store. First, you have to pay for the procedure, then you have to pay for all the medicine, and then you have to pay for the storage. And when I did it, it was well before it was a more affordable procedure. It was definitely a more expensive procedure when I did it. Can you share some numbers with us? So when I did it nine years ago, the procedure itself at NYU Fertility Clinic, I believe, was a, between twelve dollars and $14,000. But then there was medication, and the medication cost about $5,000. Now, I was very privileged and lucky that my health insurance covered that medication. So I basically saved $5,000. But I know at the time, there were women spending $20,000, $25,000 to do egg freeze. And I got lucky. I remember my all-in expense was $14,500. Like I kept a little running spreadsheet and that's what I knew I spent. But nobody needs to spend that much money anymore. If you want to go to NYU, great, but you don't have to. You can go to Extend Fertility by Dr. Josh Klein. He used to work at RMA and a very reputable clinic. He's a very reputable doctor. He knows exactly what he's doing. And essentially he's opened up an egg freeze clinic, exclusive egg freeze, as opposed to being part of a larger fertility clinic, which is where I went. And all the clinics were about the same price. NYU, Cornell, RMA, all the reputable clinics were about the same price at that time. But in today's DNH, Dr. Klein offers a much less expensive procedure. He has a certain guarantee of number of eggs, which means he'll cycle you until you get the number of eggs he wants from you. When I heard about him, it was um, $5,000 and he guaranteed you 12 eggs. So that was a phenomenal deal. And frankly, I'm going to be tough and I'm going to say it like it is. If you're single and you're in your 30s, get yourself to extend fertility, period. End of discussion. Like there's, there's just no discussion. You have nothing to lose, everything to gain. And I don't want to hear anybody tell me I can't afford it. I don't want to hear any, because when it was $20,000, I could hear that. But now that it's $5,000, okay, maybe you still have to pay for your medication. That's another $5,000. Look, being single is harder because you have a single income. You don't have a shared income. You don't have a partner to pay for things. But the fact of the matter is when my girlfriends would say to me, I can't afford egg freeze, but then they went to an Alaska cruise in the summer and they went away for Pesach. And then they also had a midwinter vacation. Boom, boom, boom. That was $6,000 right there minimum that they could have put toward the egg freeze. And they could have, so they, they could have suffered for two years and not taken a trip and they would have had the money. Now, in some cases, people can't, but there are other resources. There are other resources. And I know girls who bent themselves over backwards to afford it when it was super expensive, and now everybody can afford it. But what people have to understand about egg freeze is that 
this is a bank account that you're putting away really, really for the future because hopefully you're getting married. And when you get married, you're trying naturally. And if, God forbid, it doesn't work naturally, the next thing you're doing is you're trying to have babies in a fertility clinic with what we call fresh eggs. And you're not using frozen eggs. No doctor is going to tell you automatically go into that bank account of your frozen eggs. So this is plan C. Your frozen eggs is plan C if you get married. First, you try naturally. Then you try fertility with your fresh, freshly cycled eggs. And then if all else fails, that's when you go to your frozen egg bank. So it can cost because you have to pay storage fees all those years. But again, Extend Fertility is offering a very reduced price. Now, one thing I want to say, I am not friends with Dr. Josh Klein. And I'm not here to advertise for him. I'm advocating for the girls and the single women. And I'm advocating for, you know, becoming an AMB Israel to become a mother, which is what my goal always was. In fact, I will be honest, I had a bit of a dispute with Dr. Klein that I emailed him about. And he was gracious enough to respond. He has an age limit. So there are single women who will age out. And I believe he, like every other fertility clinic, is very concerned about their numbers. They want to show, you know, literally productivity. They want to get in the game. They want to get in the race. It is a game. It is a financial game. I'm not saying he's in it for the money. I'm not saying that. Uh, no, I would never say that. They're helping all of us, right? They're helping women and couples have babies. However, he he does have a strict age limit, I believe. I think it was either 42, maybe it was 45. And by the way, the health insurance has the same the same cutoffs because, yeah, they have the same age restrictions, which makes no sense because it's like the women who need fertility treatment the most are sort of shut out of these privileges. Again, if you are in your 30s and you're listening to this podcast you have to get yourself to a fertility clinic and don't overthink it because if you overthink it, you're never going to do it. I'm curious, what, what are the thoughts that you have to work through as a from woman who is choosing to have a child in a community where it's not that it's unheard of, no one even thinks about it? Right. So first of all, every religious woman whether she's left on the spectrum or right on the spectrum, has to work through the same things. Because at the end of the day, the, there will be surprises within all worlds where there will be embrace and there will be rejection on both the right and the left. So within the right-wing world, there were some people that I least expected to be euphoric and overjoyed for me. And they felt like, well, of course, this is what a Jewish woman should be. She should be a mother. And within the left-wing world, I personally didn't experience this, but I have friends who are in a very, very modern Orthodox world, and they do not occupy a space where there is any right-wing Haredi adjacent anyone in their life, but Jews and religious Jews are traditional people and religious communities are traditional communities and they're very much family oriented communities. And you will have the most left wing rabbis and communal members and families who might not approve of this procedure of, of becoming a single mom by choice. They might not approve of that. So the fears, the challenges, the communal reception is absolutely across the board. And it makes no difference, you know, and I know extremely, you know, right-wing rabbis who embraced friends of mine who did this and a girlfriend of mine in Passaic had a baby on her own. At her breast, she had three prominent rabbis speak and they all applauded her. I mean, right-wing rabbis in the Passaic community, and they all applauded her decision. And the moel that she had was Rabbi Pesach Krohn, who has a wonderful reputation of being a huge advocate for singles in general, number one. And number two, he basically got up there and gave a speech and said that what my friend has done was motivated by pure chesed because she didn't want to live her life for herself. So if you have a Rabbi Pesach Kron embracing your decision, that's fantastic. Is that representative of other right-wing rabbis? No, but you have 
any exception to the rule. And it could be the opposite as well. So what are some of the halachic issues that may come up? Yeah, so there are many halachic issues. And I definitely, as a very halachic Jew, went to a Rav and I went to a heavyweight champion. I did not go to a Rav who had to ask another Rav who was a real posik the questions and answers. I went to a posik who could answer the questions himself. And what are the questions for anyone who doesn't know anything? Interestingly, you know, I walked in with a set of questions but I had the foresight or the insight to also say at the end of my consultation with this Rav, what am I not asking you that I'm not thinking of? And he told me a bunch of things that actually were a little um, shocking. Are you comfortable sharing? Yeah. So some of the questions that I did come in with were like, who is this child's father? So like, let's say I have a boy and he's called up to the Torah for an aliyah. Who is he the son of? Is he the son of Abraham Avinu? Is he the son of Elishtavachaya? That's my Hebrew name. And there is a source, by the way, in the Gemara that says there was a Rav who didn't have a father and he went by his mother's name. He was Ben so-and-so, you know, so-and-so, and the so-and-so was his mother's name. Um, in the end... Um, I had a girl, so this won't really be relevant, but had I had a boy, I personally would have felt comfortable saying Ben Abraham, um, but there were other options. And frankly, you know, it's interesting because there's no absolute halacha on this whole parsha because this is an unknown to halacha. So for instance, I mean, the big, big question was, do I need to have Jewish sperm as my donor? And what's really fascinating is that there's an old, old shayla or tshuva from Rav Moshe that said Yudafka shouldn't have sperm. And he was talking about couples where the man, man was infertile. So he allowed donor sperm, but he dafka preferred there to be non-Jewish sperm because of the fear that there could be two siblings that marry each other. Well, guess what? The world has changed considerably since Rav Moshe. And right now, you, my child will be found. Even though I did a closed sperm donation, my child will be found. And when you get to the fertility clinic, you sign a raft of paperwork with basically, you know, giving away the right to sue the fertility clinic if your child is found. Because all somebody needs to do is type in their numbers and they'll find them in the day and age of internet. What do you mean type in their numbers? Every sperm donor has a number, has an identifying number. Allegedly, allegedly, this is between me and the fertility clinic, but they will be found. You know, <laughs> I thought you could take DNA tests. Correct, correct. And also the fact of the matter is I had a child on my own. Even if I get married tomorrow, which Hashem, that would be great. And even if my child will you know, essentially grow up with a father of her own, it's not going to be a secret that this child was made by me in a fertility clinic on my own. And therefore, whoever my child gets engaged to, she and her chasen, Emir Hashem, will take DNA tests and they will find out. And also it's, it's super unlikely there'll be siblings unless she's actually going to marry, you know, another child that was made through fertility procedures. So it's so theoretical. And in a day and age of total transparency and internet, well, you will be found, even if you think you won't be found and you will be uncovered. The fact of the matter is there are phenomenally you know, in a sense invasive, but in a sense empowering ways of knowing the truth and knowing about siblings and knowing about genetic compatibility, by the way. I mean, I took all sorts of genetic tests to know what I am a carrier of, what the child is a carrier of, what the what the child's genetic materials are carriers for. And by the way, everybody's a carrier for something. So this is not, a, you know, something that ruins the shidduch. Every single human being carries some genetic disease. So in my case, I felt that knowledge is power. I did the J-screen system, which is a full 
raft of hundreds and hundreds of diseases, not just Jewish Ashkenazi, but others as well. And frankly, every single day, there's a new system that develops that will test you for 250, for 500, for it'll be up to 10,000 by the time my daughter is ready to test herself. So so you did use a Jewish sperm donor. That's not something I'm going <laughs> to okay. um, talk about. But it's what I want to tell you is that that is no longer a tshuva that is relevant. I mean, that's a pretty big statement for me to say. But my Rav told me that because the technology has changed, Rav Moshe's thinking is dated. So everybody will have to make their own decision. And my goal today is to encourage other from women to do this, but some will prefer a Jewish sperm donor. Some will prefer a non-Jewish sperm donor. And um, something else that should be interesting once we're talking about genetic diseases is that um, one of the one of the sperm samples that I did choose, by the way, was non-Jewish and We should talk about why I say one of the, but we can in a minute. And interestingly, I thought, okay, I'm a Jewish Ashkenazi girl, but this is a non-Jewish man. So for sure, there's no genetic problems. But the fertility clinic didn't let me get away with that. They were like, "Uh -uh uh-uh, not so fast. You never know. So I tested his sperm. And guess what? He was positive for some Jewish Ashkenazi genetic diseases. So Look, he had to fill out forms, his own raft of paperwork, because he could be sued, you know, if he's lying about his, you know, his religious affiliation for this precise reason. But isn't it fascinating? So he either is Jewish and doesn't know it, or he is literally part of the 2% of the world's population that tests positive for a Jewish Ashkenazi disease. So it's pretty ironic that here I thought. Well, could it be that his father's, uh, he's Jewish on his father's side, so he's halachically not Jewish, but he has They Jewish have to reveal genetics. the sperm donors by law, by their own you know, legal arrangements. Got it. So if they had a father who's Jewish, they have to disclose. That. Correct. Got they it. absolutely, they, they can, because this is what's at stake. You know, I, God forbid, could have thought as naively as I did. Oh, but I'm, you know, but he's not Jewish. So it won't make a difference. And God forbid, if I would have had a child with an Ashkenazi genetic disease, I could have turned around. I could have sued this clinic. I, when I tell you that you sign a raft of paperwork, I mean, you're signing 30 papers, you know, like, I will not see you, I will not see you. And it should be clear that every single person, and by the way, even married women, every child, you have a chance of having a child, even if you had five kids before that did not test positive for any kind of Ashkenazi disease, you don't know that the next child might actually test positive for something. So genetic testing is an exceptionally important thing, not just for people walking into fertility clinics, not just for Kala's about to get married, but for Ashkenazi Jews in general to be on the ball with. And it is so easy to do these days. Now, um, I did mention like one of the sperm donors I chose. It, It should be noted that all of these procedures are a chance, a chance that you take. They might not work. And if they don't work, then you're you're out of sperm and you have to start again. So when I walked into the fertility clinic eight years after I had frozen my eggs and said, okay, I'm ready to defrost, they handed me a menu of options. It was like a it was like a Chinese menu. And every procedure cost a certain you know, thing like you could, you could get lucky and you could do something called IUI, which is quote unquote, the turkey baster method. And it costs you $1,100. You could get pregnant on the first try and your journey to become a mom costs you $1,100. You may, you know, not have to do that for whatever reasons you will be counseled by medical professionals. You may do other procedures. There were about 10 on the menu that I saw, you could do this, you could do that. You could do your own egg with donor sperm. You could do, you know, a known sperm donor. If you knew someone that could donate to you, you know, you could do a donor, you could do donor egg, you could do donor embryo, you could do donor fresh embryo, you could do donor frozen embryo. It was like this menu of options. You could do a surrogate. 
you know, they had, they had a surrogacy program. And by the way, I didn't make my baby with the NYU fertility clinic. I actually went to Columbia university fertility clinic instead. And, um, for whatever reasons I decided to switch. And so it was sort of dizzying what the options were. You obviously want to go for the most economical, but you also will have to factor in many factors. How many eggs do you have? What is your age? What is the council? You know, what is the council of the clinic? What are they promoting? What are they pushing? What are they, you know, advocating for? And they're not always going to let you, you know, do the procedure that's the cheapest to do. And it should be noted that right now I have friends, I have single friends who've done it all. I have friends who use their own eggs. I have friends who use donor eggs. I had friends who did fresh embryo transfer. I have a friend who became a surrogate mom. And I have a bunch of friends actually who became single moms, um, because they adopted. I have a friend who had a baby with a surrogate mom. So there, there are many, many ways to make a baby. And when I said that my journey toward motherhood began with my egg freeze, I knew that I was taking a chance. It might not work. And therefore, I had to keep my eye on the goal, which was that I didn't want to live alone. And I didn't want to live my life for myself. I wanted to become a mom, no matter what. And I actually did a fair amount of research into a, adoption. And um, I can't say that I totally knocked that off the table. I mean, I, you know, I do not want my daughter to be an only child. I'm not ready right now to get pregnant again. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that's going to be the right decision for me. And I still think about adoption. And I know now a bunch of women from religious women who have become single moms by adoption. So people have to understand that the menu of options, everything might fail. You know, this is still very experimental. I mean, fertility treatment has been around maybe for a hundred years and it's obviously gotten phenomenally sophisticated and it's completely amazing how the, the miracle of babies being made in these little petri dishes is working. And my baby was a miracle. And to be blunt, I'm not going to tell you which procedure I used. However, I didn't know these statistics and I'm sure glad the doctors didn't tell me, but after I was done, I decided to do the Google search and find out what are the chances of this particular procedure for a woman my age of working. And it was a 27% chance. So the fact that it worked was completely miraculous. Wow, that's so beautiful. Okay, so did we finish the halachic, (laughs) the list? Other questions are, you know, in this world of if my eggs didn't work and I would have to use a donor egg, because I was trying to think of all of the possible scenarios. I wanted to know if the child is born to me, if that child um, would have to undergo Gior, you know, or is the child Jewish? So that turned out to be a fascinating and robust debate um, because I thought, I thought it's a no brainer. No, if the child is born to a Jewish mom, it's no problem because you're Jewish and the child is Jewish. But what if the embryo donor isn't Jewish? And, you know, there were all these permutations, like, you know, we could make like a little family tree with, you know, a hundred different branches of how you could make a baby. And actually it turns out to be a big debate. And some people say that the child has to go through something called Gior Lechumra, which is just a mikvah dip. That's it. You know, just a dunking and that's it. No bracha. And that's it. Some people are like, nope, born to a Jewish mom, Jewish. You know, so there were all these permutations of all these questions that I just, you know, like my mind was spinning and I I didn't even know to ask certain questions. Now, um, there was something that was very surprising. And frankly, that was very shocking. And I haven't really talked about this with anyone. And I think very, very few people know about this. But apparently, there's a halacha that I guess the rules can be bent, that a woman who has a baby is not allowed, like a baby baby, is not allowed to get married for two years until the child is two years old. 
And this was a shock to me and it was a devastating shock to me. And I looked at the Rav and I said, what, why? And apparently there's some, I, I don't know what the justification is, but there's a Gemara that discusses this issue. And I think the issue is, I don't know, like maybe that she would be marrying the man just for financial support. I actually don't think it was about the woman's intention. I think it was about the man's intention. But it's supposedly something like a child who's still of nursing age, let's say, cannot become the child of another man. Some, something like this. And I'm not a rabbi and I'm not a posik, just like I'm not a doctor. And I am just a single woman who had a baby. <laughs> like I, I am not an expert in any of these things, though I dipped into all these worlds and all these places. And I was very hurt by this and I was very upset. And the Rav I went to told me, look, if you meet someone, we can make an exception to the rule and we can get around this. That's basically what he told me. But very, very, very halachically knowledgeable people know this to be true. And it could be that they would hesitate to set me up as a result of that, because it's going to need sort of special permission in order to happen. Well, so far my baby's seven months, and I'm not exactly getting married tomorrow, even though I wish I was, but... Um, but I am looking to get married. And I guess if that happens, God willing, I would need that heter. I would need to get around it. So that was something that was hurtful and that was upsetting to me. But, and frankly, when I heard it, I actually lost a lot of time. I had to think twice about it. Like, what, what should I do? And again, I went back to that advice that I received from someone else, which was you can get married at any time, but you can't have a baby at any time. And even with all this medicine, the fact of the matter is like, meaning even if it's, you're not at the end of your own fertility capabilities, you can still make a baby. You know, you can still carry a baby. The doctors will tell you women in their seventies have viable, you know, uh, uteruses, uteri to carry babies, like to be pregnant with babies. But the question is like, are you running out of time in terms of your own strength and psychological ability to become a mom? So I felt like I was, I was hitting that deadline and this is the oldest I wanted to be then my child. And I just had to proceed. So I did. This is so important that you mentioned it. So thank you very much. I'd like to go into the emotional aspect of going through this process on your own, going into clinic and getting pregnant and being pregnant on your own. And what was it like? So I'll tell you that it was more emotionally shocking and difficult when I froze my eggs. It was that way because from girls are not taught to talk about their bodies. We don't know about our bodies. We don't talk about our bodies. And the only way you ever learn about your body and talk about any of your body parts in this respect is when you get engaged. So if you don't get engaged, you just miss that whole topic, you know, like it just never happens for you. So it was an exceptionally difficult thing psychologically and physically. I mean, you're talking about, you know, you're in a fertility clinic. Some of the doctors are male, but even when they're female, you're in compromised positions. And these are not painless procedures. They can be extremely uncomfortable physically. They can be awkward. So the entire procedure was absolute torture when I froze my ex. Torture. And when I was done with it, I felt tremendous relief. And therefore, I should say that when I went to become pregnant, it was kind of like, ah, been there, done that, you know, and I was so focused on the end goal. And frankly, had I not been focused on the end goal when I was freezing my eggs, I never would have gotten through it. I would have chickened out and I would have missed the next appointment because it was too humiliating. It was too tough. It was too hard. And it was grueling. The whole process was grueling. Can you give us some more examples besides for the physical pain? 
when I froze my eggs, I felt like, is this being proactive or is this me throwing in the towel? Is this defeat? And by the way, I want you to know that when I froze my eggs, not in 1 million years did I think that I would become a single mom. I absolutely still was convinced I'm getting married and I'm getting married shortly. And this is the most important tashtadlas that I could possibly do. I was totally not in the mindset of becoming a single mom or believing that I would remain single for so much longer. So that was itself a journey. I would say after about five years, when I realized uh, nothing doing and I'm still single, that's when I started the agony of realizing that I got to do something with these eggs. I, I got to do something with my life. This cannot go on the way it is. And it was an extremely painful journey. And I went to a panel discussion, actually, on the Upper West Side, where two Jewish organizations co-sponsored a panel discussion with three single moms three single religious moms, or I should say two single moms and one girl who had frozen her eggs. And it was a fair panel. It wasn't great. Um, one woman had adopted a child and one woman had had babies on her own through medical intervention, through fertility clinics. And, you know, it wasn't uh, an earth shattering event for me, but one question that was asked by an audience member that was very striking was someone said, asked these two moms, are you still looking to get married? And both of them kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, eh, I mean, if the man is value added, you know, they were very, <laughs> very uh, tough about it. They were like, I don't know, he's got a really prove that he's worth it because I have a beautiful family now and I want to interrupt the beautiful dynamic of me and my children, you know, for this man. And I was thunderstruck by that response. And at the time I was not pregnant, but I was just beginning to think about having a baby on my own. And I swore that will not be my attitude. I definitely absolutely want to get married and I still do. And I still do. And nothing's changed. It's seven months later. I, I have a baby. She's adorable. I love her. But, you know, and I'm doing fine. Thank God I'm not falling apart at all. But um, I still have the same attitude. I absolutely 100% want to get married still. So it was very scary at the time, though, when I decided to launch and become pregnant. I recognized that I was delaying just by virtue of the pregnancy. That was nine months of not really dating. Little did I realize there would be a global pandemic when I started. So anyway, there really wasn't dating. So it was kind of a good time to be pregnant because I wasn't losing time in that respect. Um, someone did try to set me up while I was pregnant and I wasn't telling anyone at that time that I was pregnant and I kept pushing her off and I kept using the pandemic as the excuse. Oh, I don't feel comfortable. You know, until I get a vaccine, I don't feel comfortable. And then a couple of months later I had a baby and I wrote to her, I was like, well, this is the real reason why I don't want to go out with that guy. She was like, okay, I could understand that you don't want to go out on a date when you're six months pregnant. Like, it's just strange <laughs> to arrive on a date six months pregnant. And it happens to be the way I carried my baby. I didn't look pregnant. I just looked fat. <laughs> so he could have just thought that I was very overweight. <laughs> I could have gotten away with it. Well, three months later, you wouldn't be able to get away with it after there was a crying baby. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it wasn't about deception. It was just about, it was too awkward for me. And I did not feel confident enough at that time to A, share that I was pregnant with that particular person I did share with my closer friends that I was pregnant and be to be dating it was just too weird yeah the other emotional hurdles were to just have the courage to proceed and you're just getting to know me but my my friends and my world like my outer world they know me to be an extremely brave and courageous person I have traveled all over the world. I have a very non-conformist profession. I'm an architect. I do lots of different types of things. And I'm a public speaker. I give shiurim so I can lecture to 250 people. They think of Ellie Levy as cool and gutsy and totally unique and out there. And of course, Ellie Levy had that baby, of course. But my close friends know this was agony. There is no, of course, I didn't just breeze into a fertility clinic. It was agony. 
It was agony. And I needed the courage and I needed to work on acquiring the courage. And the way I did that was that I went to a therapist and I went to a tough therapist. I went to a super tough therapist and she put me through the ringer, but she helped me get there. And you know what? I stopped seeing her when I moved to Passaic and left the Upper West Side. And when I was seven months pregnant, it occurred to me that I should share with her that I, you know, I've, I'm almost at the finish line here. And I wrote her an email and I said, I just want you to know that I'm seven months pregnant. And she was euphoric. She was so joyous. And then I sent her the birth announcements when I had the baby and she was so grateful. She's like, no one ever follows up. Everyone just gives me the bad news. But she pushed me over the, you know, over the fear factor. And frankly, I needed, I needed the courage. It was not, you know, Ellie Levy being super cool and just like, yep, I'm going to have a baby, going to do it. No, it took, it took so much strength to get there. And the biggest fear, the biggest fear was what will people say? And will people reject my baby? So I will tell you that the communal reception to this baby has been shockingly amazing. Now, does it mean that every single person has been warm and overjoyed and excited for me? No, no. I still have an aunt and an uncle who have not acknowledged the birth of my baby. And I have another aunt and uncle where the aunt acknowledged the birth of my baby and actually bought me a baby gift, but they don't approve of my baby. But this wasn't shocking to me. This was expected. How do you know they don't approve? They told you I don't approve or they're just cold? Cold, cold, distant, not warm, and not acknowledging that I had a child <laughs> in any way. So maybe I'm naive, but why would anyone care? How, do, how does you having a baby affect them besides for bringing more family to the family, which in the Jewish community, nobody complains about? Right. So it breaks the norm. One of my aunts and uncles, the ones who did not acknowledge the birth of my baby, have two single daughters. One is in her 40s, one is in her upper 30s. Maybe they're terrified that this is the only way that they're going to have grandchildren. It is, I guess, still associated with something that's done in the non-Jewish world, not the Jewish world, not the from worlds. And I can't answer for other people's social awkwardness and issues and or their stinginess. I don't feel like some young couple in their 20s has more of a right to become pregnant and bring a child into this world than me, who's financially independent and got myself together. Look, the fact of the matter is that I was completely overwhelmed by how joyous people were for me. And I have to say that I described it in the following way. There was sort of this volcano of euphoria that erupted. And it was, it was amazing how happy people were for me and the community at large. However, I did have one or two friends who were cold in their reception. But now that the baby is here and in this world and is so completely adorable. They love her. They're not being nasty to her. They haven't cut me out of their lives. They're very happy for her. One of my friends who's a Satmar Hasid was shocked when I told her that I wanted to have a baby on my own. She thought I was crazy. Yet she keeps buying me gifts and she keeps giving me more and more gifts and she keeps throwing, you know, more and more gifts at me. So the fact of the matter is that this, by the way, is not a unique story. I am on several single mom by choice Facebook groups and the non-Jewish women say this all the time. They're like, I told my parents that I wanted to have a baby. They didn't approve. And then as soon as I brought home a grandchild to them, their hearts melted and they love the child. So this is a typical story of any, it's called SMC, you know, single mom by choice. And it's more rare that the family is going to embrace and encourage you. I did have one very, very close friend. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I had several very close friends who were genuine cheerleaders who were like, go, 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 Ellie, go, Ellie. And one of whom I should say her name 
Rachel Weiner, she is a practicing psychologist. She really is partly responsible for why my baby is in this world because she held my hand and she was such an advocate. And I couldn't have done it without cheerleaders like that in my life. Now, like I said, I don't know what people are saying behind my back because I can't hear what they're saying behind my back, but I also just don't care. You know, and I have another girlfriend in Passaic, like I told you, who had a baby boy and she did it before me. And when she had her baby, when she, when she had her baby, I said to her, when she told me she was pregnant, I said, are you nervous what other people will say? And I remember she had this very self-confident, almost too confident response. No, I don't really give a darn. And I thought that she was bluffing because I was so hyper paranoid. What will people say? What will people say? And yet when I got pregnant and I was quote unquote successfully pregnant when I was in like the seven months like zone where I felt like, first of all, I'm getting bigger and people are going to have to know what's going on underneath there, all those big shawls that I'm wearing. And second of all, when I was feeling more confident that, you know, this is going to be a viable birth, God willing. I also started to develop that attitude. And now that I have the baby, I can tell you, Francisca, my only regret is that I expended so much energy worrying what will people say, because now I'm there too. Who gives the darn? Who cares? Like, who cares? And I'm just so overjoyed and it is so natural and it's so part of my life that, you know, people keep asking me, is it a massive overhaul to your schedule? Yeah, it's, you know, it makes a dent in the schedule, of course, but you ask any mother that, and the answer is the same. If it doesn't dent your schedule, you're not being a mom. <laughs> exactly. But the bottom line is that this is the way it should be. This is the way it should be. And what about your support system? You don't have a built-in support system. What does it look like? I have an amazing support system that is a complete surprise. Like I had no idea that I was going to have the support system. So I moved out of the Upper West Side to come to Pacific because this is where my family um, moved. We had all lived in Brooklyn and then everybody moved to Passaic and I moved to the Upper West Side. And then I left the Upper West Side and came to Passaic to, first of all, to be blunt, to save money. Um, I got an apartment double the size for half the rents. And right now I'm looking out at the magnificent view of the entire Manhattan. So when I lived in Manhattan, I didn't have a view of anything. I looked out into a courtyard and now I can see the entire skyline lit up and it's beautiful lights. So it was really a financial move. It definitely was. I didn't know how much my family would come through for me. And I'm completely overwhelmed and overjoyed at how they have. I have one sister and she has three children, two teenage daughters and a 12 year old son. And this is absolutely the way for anybody to have a baby. First, you have someone else have the teenager for you. And then you have an infant because the teenager loves the baby and loves babysitting. And it's her favorite job. And then there are two teenage daughters who are fighting over who gets to hold the baby. And then there's a 12-year-old boy who shockingly adores the baby and also is fighting to hold the baby. And don't tell the girls I said this, but I think the baby's favorite is that 12-year-old boy. He's just like cute and little. He has a small face. I think she relates to, to his small size. So these kids turned out to be amazing. And essentially what's happening is that my niece in high school has her required her chesed hours that she has to fill every week. So she picks up the baby from daycare, which is around the corner from her house. It's two blocks away from her house. She picks up the baby every Monday night. So I have a Monday night. I can go to the gym or I could stay later at work. Okay. Every Friday afternoon, the daycare lets out at 3.30 in the afternoon and the other teenage niece goes to pick up the baby. So I have Friday afternoons where I can be a mensch and I'm working from home on Fridays, but I can work till five and not have to drop everything in the middle of the day and go get the baby. So those are two days a week. Down the block from me, Passaic is a major makam chasad, but down the block from me, when I moved here, I discovered an old high school classmate who herself had gotten married later in her 30s, and she has four daughters, um, four teenage daughters, 
And they have a very small family and they're a very special family. And essentially they decided that my baby was their first cousin. So they take care of her as if she is their first cousin. They buy her gifts and constantly get, every time I go there, I'm getting another gift for this baby. And one of their daughters actually also uses her chassad hours to babysit for my baby. So this is all free babysitting. I haven't shelled out one dime. This baby is seven months old. So I have not shelled out one dime for babysitting. It's amazing. What about Shabbos and Yantif? So Shabbos and Yantif, I spend with my sister. I do spend with my sister. But all these amazing you know, people, it, it is a makom chassad. And I'll be honest, um, a couple of times, my, my, my friends, kids weren't available. My sister was away for Shabbos. And I called my niece's high school friends to babysit. And they got together to babysit my little Ayelet. You know, like it's fun for them. So when I see the community has accepted this baby, they're fighting over this baby. They all they all want the privilege of babysitting this baby. So Baruch Hashem. I have had tremendous communal support and I couldn't have done this on the Upper West Side. I just couldn't have done it. So thank God <laughs> it it has really worked. And there will come a day when I'll have to shell out a couple of dollars for babysitters. <laughs> but so far, I, I've done very well for myself here. So Baruch Hashem for all this chassad. Well, this is a beautiful way to end. I want to thank you so much, Ellie, for coming onto the show. This has been one of the most beautiful conversations I've had. I want to thank you. It's a happy ending. It's a new beginning to so many future who knows what's to come. Yeah. But I, this is due for a follow-up because there's so many questions that I have prepared for a single mother of by choice who has a, an older child, because there are other questions that come up once the child has questions and, and conversations. So I wish you and just all the warmth and love. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Francesca, for the opportunity. And I also hope that a lot of other single from women realize that we may have been shut out from the privilege and the blessing of marriage, but we do not have to be shut out from the privilege and blessing of motherhood anymore. Thank you so much for sticking around until the end. If you enjoyed this, Fran Stans, please make sure to subscribe to the show on whatever podcasting app you're listening to. Make sure to share this with a friend so we can continue growing the show. And follow me on Instagram for day-to-day behind the scenes, what goes into producing a podcast, how I help other people with their podcasts, and how I help them monetize their podcasts. I actually just went onto the podcast app to look at my backlog because I keep telling you to go listen back to all the other and older episodes. And I realized the first 60 episodes were missing. So I contacted my hosting platform and they just told me they're re-uploading or showing up the archive so you can go back and listen to the Francisca Show podcast from the beginning. There are so many episodes. We talked about Jewish women in the arts and entertainment. I interviewed so many women in the space and some men so i hope you go back and you enjoy also i remember we are still working on the hair covering episode as well as some other very exciting episodes just for you so keep tuning in and see you next week